riding in my truck this week with one of our children, and they say to me, I wish that we could have grown up in the 80s or 90s. Now, that made my heart really, really just swell, swell up, you know. And I said to them, I really wish you could have too. Uh, because I remember growing up in those days, and there wasn't any social media uh, to have to worry about. And I, I remember growing up in those days and uh, playing outside until the streetlights came on, and that was always the sign that you were supposed to go in for dinner. And so I have these fond memories of those times. They've been watching some of these shows from the 80s and 90s, like Saved by the Bell and Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and stuff, and they've got this glamorized view of what it was like back in those days. But I bet if I were to go around the congregation and speak to some of you, you may have uh, feel the same way about different eras in times past. You may wish that it could be like it was in the 1950s, or you may finally recall what it was like in the 1970s and sort of wish that it could be like it was at those times. Comedian Jerry Seinfeld said, you can tell what was the best year of your father's life because they seem to freeze their clothing style and just ride it out for the rest of their lives, right? Some of you are laughing because it hits a little close to home, right? But what we fail to remember are all the bad things that happened during those times, right? We forget how hard it was growing up during the Great Depression era. Or we forget that African Americans were fighting for their civil rights during the 1950s and 1960s. We forget that uh, drug trafficking exploded in our country during the 1970s and 1980s. We forget that during the 1990s, we were in the midst of a Gulf War uh, and violence, gang violence was increasing on our east and west coasts. And so it wasn't all that we remember it to be. And God's people can sort of make the same mistake at times. We say, well, I'd just like for us to get back to like 1950s church. Or I would like for us to get back to, to 1980s church. But God has ordained that you would live where you live at this time for his kingdom. That you are here for such a time as this. And we aren't the first ones that might have had an idea like that. Remember the Hebrew people after they had been uh, escaped from slavery in Egypt were wandering around in the wilderness going, it might be nice if we could go back to slavery in Egypt. As silly as that sounds. And sometimes we might even look back fondly at our life in the past and, and, and say, it wasn't so bad how I used to be. And we had this idea that maybe we could just go back. This morning we're launching into a new sermon series called A Better Hope. And we're going to, for until the summer, uh, go through the book of Hebrews. And we're going to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, all the way through the book of Hebrews. And this book is a, a letter that was written to Jewish Christians who were thinking about going back to Judaism. They were looking back at those prior times and saying, it wasn't so bad, was it? Maybe we could just go back to, to what it was like before. And Hebrews is an extended argument as to why those days weren't what they remembered them to be. And the main theme, the question that we'll be asking as we're going through this entire series is this. Why would you want to go back? Because Jesus is better. 
Why would you want to go back? Because Jesus is better. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd ask you to stand in honor of God's word if you're able. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 1 this morning. We're going to study the first three verses of this book. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, the word of God says, Long ago God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Thank you. You may be seated. The action step for us today as we take this this word that God gave his people a a thousand years ago, 2,000 years ago, and apply it into our lives today, the action step for us today is to continually place your hope in Christ. To continually place your hope in Christ and in nothing else. And so as we go through uh, these first verses, I want us to see that this is a better moment in time. This is a better moment in history. This is a better moment in salvation history that we're a part of. And so it begins here uh, with a promised word from God, a promised word. The author of Hebrews is writing this letter that many scholars believe was originally a sermon. Uh, If you were just to sit down and read through the book of Hebrews, it would take you a 15 or 20 minutes, uh, and, and many people believe this, this was originally delivered as a sermon. Uh, and it was given to a group of Christians who were coming from a Jewish background. And so a, as you read the letter, it, it's clear that the author is arguing that these Christians would place their hope in Christ, in Christ, over and over and over through this letter. He's pointing them to Jesus And so evidently there was this desire among some of them to return to their former ways. Perhaps they were facing intense persecution. Perhaps uh, there was other things going on that they started looking back and going, you know, Judaism wasn't so bad. It was familiar. It was, it was something that we grew up in. It was something that, that, that we liked. And so they began to, to yearn for this return to Judaism. And so the author of Hebrews is laying out this masterful argument as to why abandoning Jesus for Judaism would be folly. Because Jesus is the better hope. And so in verse 1, he begins by saying this. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had to face difficulties in my life. I've faced situations where I didn't know what I was supposed to do. Or my family went through trials that were, that were tough. And you've gone through experience maybe where you need help. You've had, you've had times that you don't know what to do, and, and you've had times where, where you, you don't understand what's going on. And I want you to hear this good news. You're not in the dark. You have a God who speaks. You have a God who speaks. We, we've not been left alone. We've not been told to just figure it out for ourselves. We have a God who speaks. When you read 
the Bible, we see that there was nothingness, there was darkness, but then God spoke. And when he spoke, he brought existence. He brought order. He brought life through his very word. And so we have a God who speaks. And so the author begins by finding this common ground with his hearers. They're, they were from this Jewish background and, and obviously would have had great respect for the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, God spoke to the fathers in different times and in different ways. And so he is not discrediting the Old Testament. He's not saying that we should abandon the Old Testament or unhitch our wagon from the Old Testament. He's affirming that it is the very word of God. But they needed to remember the purpose of the Old Testament. It was God revealing to us how he created the world and created man to have a relationship with him. That it was God showing us how man sinned and fell from that relationship with God. And how God then covenanted with Abraham to call a people to himself that they would be his people and that they would be, he would be their God. He then sends Moses the law. And it is the law in which he is revealing his very character and his very nature to his people. is showing them what holiness looks like. And the law then makes us to see that we don't measure up. That we, that we are falling short of the glory of God. And as you continue to read through the Old Testament scriptures, we find throughout the history that, that Israel turned from God again and again, that they went after other gods, that, that they, they failed and they broke God's law. And so God would send prophets to them to call them back to himself. And these prophets were pointing them to the Messiah who would come and save them and restore them. And so this is how God was speaking to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. But Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament scriptures. Luke chapter 24, verse 27, the Bible says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. As Jesus was walking along that road to, uh, to Emmaus, he's there explaining to these men how all of these things of the Old Testament were found in him. As you read through the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John show over and over how Jesus is fulfilling all these various prophecies of the Old Testament. All of God's promises find their yes in Christ. God promised that he would provide reconciliation between man and himself. And this law that he gives to the people is a, is a picture of how this reconciliation would be accomplished. The prophets were pointing to the Messiah who would be this mediator between God and man. This is an incredible word. This is an incredible promise that God gives us. That although we were dead in our sins and trespasses, God loves us. He wants to save us. He, he desires a relationship with us. And so the Old Testament is the promise, but the New Testament is the gift. 
It's the better moment. And so God gives us this promised word in verse 1. But as you turn to verse 2, we see that God also gives us a permanent word. You see, for hundreds of years, there was silence. After the prophet Malachi spoke to the people of God, there were 400 years that the Hebrew people didn't hear from him. The final prophecy was that the Messiah would come. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord says, See, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. In Malachi chapter 4, Verse 5, he adds that I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And then there was silence. But that silence was finally broken when God speaks again in the New Testament. He speaks to a young girl named Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 31 and 32. And he says, listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you'll name him Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. The Lord speaks to a man named Joseph and tells him in Matthew 1, verse 20, That after he had considered all these things, an angel appears to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son and you're to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He speaks again to a group of shepherds in the fields nearby to Bethlehem in Luke chapter 2 verse 10. And he says to them, don't be afraid for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. You see, when we turn the page over to the New Testament, God is speaking again. But this time it's, it's different. The, the word that he promised is now being fulfilled. The Savior has come. The one in the line of David, the one that will save his people from their sins. This is good news of great joy. Because God has not forgotten us. God has not abandoned us. He is speaking to us. And so when you arrive here at verse 2, he says, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him the heir of all things and made the universe through him. This means we have a God who is not afar off. We have a God who is communicating with us and so what is he saying to us we have a God who desires a relationship with us so much that he loves you and wants you to turn from your sin and disobedience and turn to him he wants you to be a part of his family and part of his kingdom and God is communicating to you from the start of the word of God to the final pages of the word of God that he loves you and he desires to have this relationship with you And so God has spoken to us in Jesus. Jesus is 
the Word. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is God, always has been God, from the very beginning. John chapter 1, verse 14 goes on to add that this Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So God does something pretty amazing here. He became one of us. The Word became flesh, and He lived among us. He was with us, and we observed His glory. We we saw the Word with our own eyes. We saw His glory. We saw God. And so God doesn't just give a promise. He gave us His presence. It's incredible. Now, this weekend is, is Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. And he, Martin Luther King Jr., of course, gave uh, a very famous speech called the I Have a Dream speech there in Washington, D.C. And I want you to hear one of the things that he says in this speech. He says, in a sense, we have come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our great republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution, and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed to the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. He says, we're here to cash in on this check, this promise that was written by our founding fathers. And what I want you to understand is that God cashes the check on his promise that he makes in the Old Testament. Jesus is this final word. And it's a permanent word. It isn't changed. There's nothing that's added to it. There's nothing that's subtracted from it. The canon of scripture is closed. You need to hear that because there are some who are looking for another word. There are some who, who want a, a get a sign in the sky or they want a, a fortune cookie or a horoscope to tell them something. They want some sort of special message. And you find that even in churches all across our land, people looking for another word. They want someone to tell them that their sin is okay. But I'm here to tell you that we don't need another word. We don't need another covenant. All of the law and the prophets were types and shadows that were pointing us to how we could be made right with God. And Jesus is that answer. Matthew chapter 13 verse 17. The Bible says, Truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see the things you see, but didn't see them. To hear the things you hear, but didn't hear them. He said, they were longing for this word that we have. Because Jesus is better. And so we find here this promised word. We find here this permanent word. But I don't want you to miss this incredible part at the end of this passage. That God gives us a perpetual word. 
God spoke in the past. God spoke finally in Christ. But he goes on to say that then Christ sustains us by his word. In verse 3, he says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so Jesus death and resurrection this is this better moment what he's saying here in verse 3 is that Jesus is is God the author calls him the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature he uses a, a Greek word here it's the Greek word character it's where we get our word character from and it means the exact expression of a person or a thing It was a term that was often used to describe uh, an impress that they would use to make coins uh, to say that this is an exact likeness that you would find on a coin. And so, for example, I have here in my pocket, I I dug deep and found a penny this morning. Um, And on my penny here is a likeness. And it's an exact likeness of who? I was going to see if y'all knew that. Abraham Lincoln, right? And if you were to pull out a, a penny out of your purse or out of your pocket, it would be the same picture, same person, right? You don't have somebody different on your penny. It's Abraham Lincoln that's on there. It's the same picture. It's the exact impression of him over and over again. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that the same is true of God the Son. He is God. He's not like God. He is God. He's not partly God, he is God. And because he's God, he goes on to say that he's able to justify us. He is perfect and holy without sin. Why? Because he is God. And in his death, Jesus wasn't paying the price for any sin of his own. He was dying as a substitute for us, for you, for me. He was was there in our place. And so in verse 3, he says, he made purification for sins. You and I can't make purification for sins. There's nothing that I can do to erase the wrong things that I've done. In verse 3, he goes on to say that he then sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You and I can't dare go to stand in the presence of a holy God. We're unworthy But he is able to do this because he is God. Colossians chapter 1 verses 19 and 20 tell us that God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile everything to himself. Whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood that was shed on the cross. He's talking about what Jesus did for us because he is God. And his justification is complete. We are made right before God because of the work of Christ. It isn't that our sins are forgiven and now we have to be perfect. And if you mess up, it messes it up. We're not looking back and turning back to, let's try to earn our salvation. We're not looking back and turning back to, well, I'm I'm a pretty good person. Or I'm better than, than that person or the other person. No, that old life is not the way. Jesus is better. 
And what he tells us is that we are forever covered by the blood of Christ. We're forever clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so Jesus is now, he says, seated at the right hand of God in majesty, and he is our advocate. You see, Satan may accuse us. He may try to bring up all of your sin before God the judge, but we have an advocate who constantly intercedes on our behalf. Romans chapter 8, verses 33 through 34 says, Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. He pleads on our behalf based on his completed work on the cross. And so he brings a perpetual word on our behalf. And his blood calls us clean. His blood calls us forgiven. His blood calls us sons and heirs. His blood calls us righteous. His blood calls us worthy. So in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, John says, My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you might not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he is our victorious king. He's the one who has defeated the accuser and who has won our salvation. Revelation chapter 12 verse 10 says, I heard a loud voice in heaven say, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come. Because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. He's been thrown down. And I know that there are people all across this room who deal with that guilt, who struggle with that shame, who listen to the words of the evil one who accuses you and says, you're not worthy. You're not good. God doesn't really love you. He's never going to forgive you for that. But the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. And so we constantly put our hope in Christ. We're not going to look back with fond memories of life at some distant day in the past. We're, we're not going to have fuzzy feelings about, about our old life before Christ. We might even be tempted to slip back into those things sometimes. But why would you want to go back? Jesus is better. And so the action step for today is that we would continually place our hope in Christ. Christians, your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Jesus is better. And so when you begin to have that doubt and that shame, and you begin to listen to the lies of the deceiver, continually place your hope in Christ. When you begin to think, what if we went back? Continually place your hope in Christ. And so perhaps during this time of response, you want to spend some time in there at your seat or even here at this altar praying to the Lord, thanking him that we have a better hope in Christ. 
There may be some here this morning who have never trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior. And the action step is the same for you. It's that you would continually place your hope in Christ. It just means that today you need to do it for the first time. That today you need to realize that all of these promises that are fulfilled in Christ have not been realized in your life because you've never put your faith in him as your Savior. You've never called on him to forgive you of your sin. You've never followed after him as the Lord and as the king of your life. And so in a moment, we're going to have a time of response. There's going to be leaders here across the front. And this is a decision you need to make in your heart to say, I want to leave behind that old life, and I'm turning to this better hope in Christ. Then you come and let one of these leaders know that this is a decision that that God is doing in your heart this morning. But however God is speaking to you, Now's the time for us to be doers of this word and not just hearers only. Let's stand with every head bowed and every eye closed. God, we give you thanks this day for your word. God, that you have spoken to us. God, that you didn't leave us alone, that you didn't leave us in the dark. You didn't leave us on our own. But God, you have spoken to us. And you have given us the final word in Christ. We praise you today for Jesus, for his life, for his death, for his resurrection. For he is our hope and our salvation. And so God, I pray for Christians here today that they'd be encouraged. Lord, to continually place their hope in Christ. To daily place their hope in Christ. God, I pray for those who are here this morning that have never trusted in you for salvation, that today, for the first time, that they would place their hope in Christ to save them, to forgive them, to redeem them. So God, move in our hearts during this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.